0: You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid Missouri's source for in depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I hope you will stay with me for the next hour as we take a tour of the arts. This week, we are back to what I call a potpourri-style tour of the arts, dropping in on five places and visiting with people who are busily creating arts experiences for us, ranging from sketch show theatre, fine art, books, and a drive-in arts showcase. Whatever the season, there is never a shortage of arts makers to talk to and arts happenings to talk about. After a few months of indoor living, it is exciting to think about all of the outdoor options that spring and summer bring. And although we'll be wearing masks for the foreseeable future, it will be so lovely to see people and experience events in the flesh rather than on the screen. But for the next hour, we will rely on the wonders of radio to trip around the arts with visits to Columbia Entertainment Company, Or Street Studios, the Unbound Book Festival, the University of Missouri's Sinkerfeld Music Building, and my former haunt, the Columbia Art League. So, if you are sitting comfortably with a piping hot cup of coffee or a nice cup of tea and a biscuit slash cookie to nibble upon, let's head out. This weekend, the iconic comedy of Carol Bennett comes to the Columbia Entertainment Company. And whilst neither Carol nor her cast will actually be in town to revive The Char Woman... Dwayne Toddleberry or Eunice and Ed Higgins, a cast of eight of our own local comedic actors will be reviving some of the classic Carol Burnett show characters and sketches. And here to tell us more about CEC's Carol Burnett show is its director and himself a fine comedic actor, Chris Bowling. Hello, Chris. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, I am a relative newcomer to the hilarity and brilliance of Carol Burnett. She was not part of my comedy viewing in England in the 1970s, for anyone aged 50 and over in America, it was part of a Saturday night lineup that included other classics like MASH and the Bob Newhart Show and the Mary Tyler Moore Show. So tell me, what are your memories of watching the Carol Burnett Show? Pretty
1: strong. I, I think that that was probably uh, one of my first exposures to uh, sketch comedy. So it... it made a very definite strong impression on me from a young age. So yeah, I also grew up in the 70s. So that was kind of a constant presence uh, in my life, Is seeing that, you know, when it was broadcast and then in reruns later. And in fact, it's just recently uh, become available on, uh, on one of the streaming services. And I've watched a little bit of it since then to kind of uh, re myself in that world.
0: Did you have any favourite characters or sketches that really stood out to you?
1: Well uh, let's see I, I I do remember the uh the uh, mama fa- mama's family ones which later got its own spin-off as a uh, sitcom of its own um that that one definitely is a strong memory uh, and I think Probably like most people, one of the first things I think of is Tim Conway's shuffling old man (laughs) bit.
0: Dwayne Toddleberry. Yes. Did it influence you to want to become an actor or or do comedy routines? Because you are, we should say, you are one of the stable boys here in town, an improv troupe. Did it influence you?
1: You know, probably on some unconscious level, it did. I I can't remember a time that I wasn't interested in acting, so uh, I think that's probably part of the whole mishmash that that kind of uh, formed the background for me.
0: I mean, comedy acting is very different than dramatic acting. There's a lot of timing, and being a good actor doesn't mean you're a good comic actor. What are the challenges that you find doing comedy?
1: Well, I think you're you're exactly right. Timing is absolutely everything, and, and I think this is a, this is something that. Um, that every actor, myself included, struggles with is you want to savor and you want to relish in every moment that you are delivering and, and draw it out. And that often doesn't work for comedy, especially very, uh, very wit based comedy. You know, you need, you need that rapid fire. You need that, that, that quick exchange be- between actors to, to really uh, make the jokes land
0: especially when you're doing improv i i never cease to be awed by the stable boys every time i see because i mean you are not professional actors you are people in the community that get together and put on this incredible comedy show used to be kind of once every six clicks or so maybe not so much for the past year but that fast wit i mean can you can you learn that
1: I think so. I mean, I think just like anything else it is it's it's a matter of practice. Uh I I actually was part of a a previous uh, improv troupe several years ago uh called No Content Improv uh, and a few of us that are in the Stable Boys were part of that previous troupe as well. And one thing that we kind of took upon ourselves with that troupe and that's continued into this one as well is teaching one another. Is we've kind of uh made it a practice to uh, during our rehearsal periods like each week somewhat one person might might have a specific thing that we're working on, a specific skill that we're working on, or, you know, we'll we'll talk together about what do we want to look at? What what things do we want to practice and skills do we want to hone this week?
0: Can you learn to be funny? Because, I mean, being fast-witted, you might just say things that really aren't funny, but I mean, you're there to provide comedy. Do you give honest feedback to each other? Like, yeah, that wasn't funny.
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, we do. Um, uh, of course, you know we're all nice people, so we tend to to praise one another's successes more than uh, condemning the failures. But we we do try to be very honest in, in our feedback with one another.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about the genesis story for putting this show together for Columbia Entertainment Company.
1: Well, um, as with many things going on right now, it starts with COVID. Um, <laughs> Because of because of the uh, the uh, risks associated with having any kind of live theater, we have been uh, looking around for different things to keep ourselves out there to you know generate a little bit of income uh, at the same time, but you know more than that to, to keep our uh, both our audience engaged and also our volunteers and actors give them uh, an opportunity to perform and be out there. And our um, our acting artistic director uh, Liz Alexander, uh, I believe she was the one who came across a publishing company has offered a uh, set of, oh gosh, I don't even know how many, but there's a bunch of uh, the Carol Burnett show sketches all together in a bundle. You buy the bundle and then you, you can perform them. There's uh, no royalties involved after you've purchased the scripts. So we're like, well, this is a, this is a perfect opportunity for something to do. And it would we, we reasoned that it would be something fairly simple to organize and that it could translate into an online format.
0: I wondered how that worked, whether there was a book that you could buy or whether one of you had sat down and carefully transcribed all <laughs> the sketches or whether your your sketches were original, but based on the characters in the show. So this is all scripted material that you can buy.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's been interesting. Also, just reading the scripts is kind of a, a learning experience, like one in the scripts each person's lines are named for the actor who portrayed them so it's kind of a getting a history lesson seeing who (laughs) played each part and you you know you recognize like guest stars that came on there Um, so that's uh, been one um, one interesting aspect of it also just seeing you know like how they write the stage directions and like some of it is is very specific Uh, this happens and then some of them are and then this actor might do something
0: crazy here Well, I mean, the show ran on primetime for 11 years. They made 279 episodes in that 11-year run. Plus, there was another little uh, series of nine, I think, in the fall of 1991. So with so much material, and I'm sure more sketches in the book that you can work with, how did you decide which ones you were going to put into this performance for CEC?
1: Well, that actually did take quite a bit of time to you know I had to kind of pour over all of the all of the sketches that were available and think about what is going to translate because you know there's so many things that just are not going to work in in a streaming format because you know we've got each actor isolated so they can't interact with each other as well. Although um, if you see the show, you'll see that ways that we have tried to keep up the illusion that they are all interacting in the same space. Um, So really, that was the biggest thing was. Looking for things that relied more on verbal wit than on physical comedy. Uh, there is one sketch that was supposed to end with a uh, pie fight, and obviously <laughs> that's not going to work. But we, I, I liked the sketch beyond that, so we do, we just made like one little tweak at the end of it to uh, to take that pie fight out. So that's an example. Another example is um, Tim Conway's old man character. Uh, we really can't translate that, which is is very unfortunate because that's it's always such a hysterical audience winning bit.
0: Are you filming or streaming? I guess guess you are. You were streaming all of this from the actors' homes. There weren't any pre-recorded sketches that you did in part on the CEC stage.
1: That is correct. Yeah, we are all uh, working from our homes. Um, it's it's following, I, I owe a huge grat- uh, debt of gratitude to uh, Ed Elsie, who directed the It's a Wonderful Life radio play back in December. And he came up with a lot of procedures and, and ways to approach this, this kind of um, uh, work that I found really useful. And I've adopted a lot of the uh, operations that he did.
0: Well, you have a cast of eight actors, some of whom are cast members with you in the Stable Boys, other people I've seen definitely on multiple stages in Columbia. But tell me a little bit about the audition process for this production, because I'm sure that a lot of people wanted to be part of the uh, Carol Burnett sketch show.
1: Well, it was it was a, actually a fairly simple audition process. Um, we asked for people to uh, audition and we gave them uh, two options. They could either record themselves doing a comic monologue of, of their choice, or they could show up to a live through Zoom um, audition, in which case I would give them a script and have them uh, work, work with one another and just do cold readings. So, so pretty, not really much different from any other audition.
0: So one of the things that must be, I'm guessing, the hardest, I mean, comedy really has a need for its audience. There's such a resonance between the actors and the comedians in the audience and and the feedback that you get from their laughter and their participation. So talk to me about how as an actor and a director, I guess, too, you maintain that comedic energy when you can't see anybody.
1: Well, one thing that I've noticed in rehearsals, uh, we're uh, currently uh, working through uh, StreamYard, is, uh, you know, you've got a comment section, just like in Zoom, and uh, the actors have really kind of like taken it on themselves, you know, they are supporting one another, you know, so you're getting kind of like a live commentary throughout the performances. And I think that that really helps giving you this sense that, yes, yeah, someone else is paying attention.
0: So is that something that the audience can do when we see the live streaming?
1: I'm honestly not sure. We're going to be streamed through a service called uh, Showtix, and I actually have not interacted with it yet, so I don't know if that is going to be a possibility or not, but uh, I'm certainly hoping so.
0: Okay. Well, if you want to relive the classic comedy of The Carol Burnett Show, courtesy of some of Columbia's troupe of comedy actors, the Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Carol Burnett Show, a collection of sketches, is on tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 with a 2pm final matinee on Sunday. This is a live streaming event, so there are no in-theatre tickets available. You can find tickets at cectheatre.org, and they cost $14 or $25 if there are two of you viewing, or $40 if you want to watch with your bubble in a group. Chris Bowling, director of it all. Thanks for coming on to chat. Thanks for having me. Next up this morning, we are going to drop in on a place I have not been to in probably a year, but like so many venues, they have quietly been working away for the past year, maintaining an art pulse in the North Village Arts District. Wall Street Studio artists have continued making art, putting on shows in their central atrium, and like all of us, looking forward to that time that First Fridays might return. And fingers crossed, that is going to happen on Friday, April 2nd, more of a Soft reopening than its former format. And here to chat about Orr Street and their first Friday offering is its director, Mallory Donahue. Good morning, Mallory. Good morning, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. So, a year into this pandemic, with the inkling of an end in sight, yes. <laughs> how has the Orr Street pandemic year been?
2: Well, for the past year, we have been. You know, unfortunately, we've needed to be closed to the public or street houses around 30 artists in studio spaces. So, Unlike a traditional art gallery where, you know, people can come in, maybe there can be one staff member, we have to accommodate the fact that all of our artists could possibly be in their studios at one time. So we've needed to protect those people from exposure to COVID illness, and we've also had to think about how we could protect the public as well. So while we have been closed to the public, we've slowly been reopening – Our artists are allowed to have guests into the building, and that's been a nice little test of how that could work out. We are starting to do some private tours by appointment. And on April 2nd, first Friday in April, we are going to test out our first publicly available event that the public can attend.
0: So what are you doing to keep people safe for first Friday? Because that's potentially a lot more traffic than you've been used to for the past year.
2: Yes. So uh, if listeners of the show have ever been to a First Friday or Street, it can be absolutely (laughs) packed uh, with art lovers and artists. And you could get a beverage or some snacks. And uh, we have some wonderful volunteers who coordinated that. But this April 2021, First Friday is going to look a little different. We will have our current gallery show up in that central atrium. And masks are absolutely required of all of the artists and volunteers and guests at Or Street who are coming through. We have mapped out a monodirectional path, an art walk through Or Street. So the building. Can, can be a little, actually, I think this might be good because I know some people have come to Orr Street and said, oh, I've never been in that wing. I didn't <laughs> know it was there. And now you just won't be able to avoid it. Um, so <laughs> you will, uh, we will be having guests enter through our front doors and follow some wonderful arrows through the building where they can enjoy the art six feet apart Copyright on that, Mary Donahue. Okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we will we will have this path through not only the main gallery but also through. Uh, it will expose everyone to each studio. And artists may be in their studios or not, depending on their comfort level or, or what they've got going on that night, and people will be able to see the whole show. And we will have a contact tracing in place, and there will be a limited amount of visitors who can be in the building at once. So since we can have artists and we may have volunteers there as well to sort of make sure that everyone's able to distance properly and guide people through that contact tracing process. We are limiting people in the gallery to 25. Doors will be open and our ventilation system will be on. I think a lot of people are looking for some safe fun right mm-hmm. now. I know I am. <laughs> so I am. Um I would say after speaking with lots of friends and colleagues and, of course, observing things on social media, I'm on the very cautious end of the COVID precaution spectrum. And for me personally, I would be comfortable coming to this event with the distancing, with the ventilation, all these doors opening. So I'm hoping that enough people will also feel safe. And so you'll get to see the individual artist studios and also the main gallery show that will be up.
0: Well, if you feel safe doing it, and I know you are very cautious, then I know that I will feel safe <laughs> doing it. But I mean, usually when we do a tour of Wall Street or go to Wall Street for First Friday, I mean, you drop in and out of all of the artist studios and that's kind of a little bit of a point where you might meet somebody else a little closer than six feet. Are you encouraging
2: people to not... Go into the artist studios. So the different studios, the different studios are different. A couple of people, Lisa Bartlett is one of our artists who is in a very large studio, and she had a really wonderful idea of sort of cordoning off a part of her studio where she would be able to be in there and be six feet from any visitors, but a pod or a person could come into her studio, look at a little bit more of her art than is maybe on the wall outside her studio, and then leave. I think I'm going to have some artists in the smaller studios who may have their doors open, but have a little velvet rope or, um, (laughs) you know, no like caution tape or anything, (laughs) but um, you know, where someone could view perhaps them working or even view their art but not enter the studio. So yes, there won't be quite the more intimate milling within those small spaces. We are working to get our Missouri Art Safe certification and also have worked with the health department and definitely that six feet of distance. And it's it's not just telling people to have six feet of distance, but it's formatting the event so that that is just not difficult to do. So we aren't going to make it so that four people could enter a 10 by 12 foot area, you know, and uh, perhaps create an unsafe situation. So the distancing, it should just be very intuitive for a visitor and for our artists to be able to stay safe. So it will look a little different. There will not be any food or drink. There will not be as much of the sitting And looking at the art, we are going to encourage a little bit of a certain pace. So while I can't guarantee the exact atmosphere of past First Fridays, I think that the goals we are going to accomplish is that people can come see some art in person and be safe. So while it's not ideal... I think it can still scratch the itch uh, and, and make people happy to have gone out of the house. And I hope that April 2nd is just a beautiful evening um, where it's easy to keep those doors open and have people come through.
0: So you've had a lovely display on for the last few weeks, John Fennell and Laura Pintel. Correct called A Splash of Color?
2: A Brush a brush with Color.
0: A Brush with yes. Color. That won't be on, on this first Friday, but tell me what people can see and if there is still a chance to see the works that were in that show in person. Obviously, you can see them all online.
2: Yes, so the uh, exhibit is available online if you go to orrestreetstudios.com, but you can also email me at director at orrestreetstudios.com. And if you would like to schedule a walkthrough, we're limiting it to two people at a time. We will get you scheduled either with myself or Jane Mudd or Jen Wiggs. Those are people who will be doing the tours. There are no just open hours at Orr Street right now. It it will be by appointment. So you can make an appointment to see Laura and John's show. But that's before the second. So this is in the run up to the second. That's right. That's right. So the show will switch over. So if you want to do that, contact me right now. (laughs) And then uh, on April 2nd, we will have a show turnover. And I unfortunately don't believe that show quite has a title yet, but it will be the work of Gene Sachs and Dareth Godemoller. So it will be a new show up for first Friday in April. And hopefully every first Friday, if this one goes well, the next few First Fridays, there will be a new show in the gallery, in that main gallery, and you'll be able to see it in person.
0: And we should say that Jean Sachs has a big birthday that weekend. So if you do see the artist, do yes. wish her happy birthday.
2: <laughs> yes, she does. So if you plan to attend the First Friday in April, plan to wear a mask just as soon as you step onto our patio. Get that mask on. Our contact tracing is going to be super frictionless. You'll fill out a card with a single use pen and drop it in a box. And then you'll be able to walk in just as soon as we know that the amount of people are correct in the building. So we'll kind of do a one in one out flow to keep everyone safe. So that's what you need to know to come to Orr Street and enjoy some art.
0: Okay, well, the North Village Arts District First Friday event returns, fingers crossed, COVID numbers and city health department permitting on Friday, April the 2nd. But do check their website nearer the time at northvillageartsdistrict.org. And also at All Street Studios, you can see the art of Jean Sachs and Dareth Gutermuller during that event. And you can find out more at their website at allstreetstudios.com. Mallory, thank you for taking
2: time to chat today. Thank you, Diana.
0: It has been a couple of months since my next guest was last on the show, at which point he was just setting out on the adventure of reimagining his former two-day book festival into a three-month literary extravaganza. And now we are two thirds of the way into that journey. And here to catch us up is Skylock bookshop owner and executive director of the Unbound Book Festival, Alex George. Welcome back, Alex.
3: Thanks, Diana. Thanks for having me.
0: Are you in a state of permanent literary euphoria or just exhausted at this point? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both, a little bit of both.
3: It's uh it's 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 a very different kind of uh pressure this year because normally at around about this time uh, I would be sort of rarely sleeping and just getting everything ready for the influx of authors coming in at the end of April. And of course, that hasn't happened and isn't going to happen. But we've been doing, as you say, this thing, usually two events a week on Tuesday and Thursday evenings since the end of January. So it's a different level of stress or a different sort of register uh, in that respect. But it's um it's been going very well. We're very, very happy with the way things have gone. Uh, the conversations have been amazing. The poetry readings in particular have been uh, really, really inspiring and uplifting. And also we're just we're thrilled with the number of people who are, who are tuning in. I mean, one of the, one of the fun things um, about doing an online thing is that you can look at all the diagnostics and have a pretty clear sense of how many people are actually... Tuning in and, and listening, and uh, we've been bowled away uh, by the response. So that's been that's been wonderful so far. Over twenty two thousand people have tuned in to uh, to an event, and that doesn't take into account. All of the students who are participating in the authors in the school program, which is sort of going along in parallel with the adult program, we don't really talk about the authors in the school program so much. It's something that we we are passionate about and we take very seriously. But because it's strictly for schoolchildren, um, it sort of it isn't it isn't a thing that gets a lot of attention. But it's um, you know, it's something that we do uh, in partnership with Columbia Public Schools, and they do a wonderful job of making sure that. The students get to enjoy these authors, and this year, of course, it's been a rather different challenge than it is most years, but it's all going very well so far.
0: How many authors do you have going into the schools virtually?
3: Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you, it was was round about 11, I think. Uh, and some of those people are also doing events on the adult side, but mostly not. Mostly we, we sort of focus very much on getting people who, well, what, what we actually did was to go to the teachers and, and ask them who they would like to see. And we try and respond to the extent that we're able to do so to those requests. And so, and it, it's authors who write for all ages from kindergarten all the way through to 12th grade.
0: And do you have a sense of the geographical spread of your audience?
3: Well, I haven't really had time yet to dig into that sort of fun side of things. I do know that people have tuned in from... Places well beyond the United States, so it'll be fun when everything is over to sort of have a look and dig in and, and provide some sort of accounting for that. But it, one of the one of the fun things and the, the the advantages of doing an online thing is that not only are our audience more spread out, so are our participants. And so far, we've had two people from England who have actually tuned in to uh, participate, and one from Vietnam. And they're heroes, all of them, because the time difference has been such
0: that they were
3: looking a little bleary eyed as they joined in, but they were very game about it. So that's been terrific, too. We've really enjoyed that, that side of things.
0: In terms of your own craft, have there been any aha moments for you in any of the author panels? Not
3: really. But that's mainly because I tend to be busy doing things like monitoring comments and helping on the back end of things with the tech side. So I I haven't. um, There was one particularly interesting talk about suspense in fiction and how you maintain it. And that doesn't necessarily mean creeping through a darkened alleyway and with shadows and people jumping out at you, but just how it's it's how do you make sure that the reader keeps turning the pages. And I I have every intention. (laughs) Don't ask me when, but at some point I will go back and watch that again because I'm sure there was a lot of good advice there, which raises the point, just which if I may make, if people have missed events so far and there have been many, many events already, Don't worry, you can actually go back and watch them in perpetuity because they're all up on the Unbound Bookshop YouTube channel. And so you can watch whenever you like.
0: Yes, good point. I was going to make that as well. So yes, everything is still available. Well, let's have a look at some of the author events coming up between now and the keynote event, which is on Friday, April the 23rd, with a pair of Pulitzer Prize winning poets in conversation, Tracy K. Smith and Jericho Brown. But before then, you still have several events on the schedule. We can't cover them all, but a couple I'd like to pick up on. Next Tuesday, March the 23rd, you have a panel of three authors who write young adult fiction, and they're going to be exploring the changing landscape of their genre and the challenges of writing for the next generation. And I'm curious about this whole area of literature, as this was not a genre that really existed when I was graduating from kids' books. And I remember my mother, who was a librarian, working really hard to find books that worked for me at age 13 to 15. And it was really an empty market. When did young adult fiction become a genre? And like, who were its pioneers? How did it all get started?
3: I'm not entirely Sure, when it started, but I mean, I'm, I'm the same. I mean, you know, I remember growing up and reading Enid Blyton and um, <laughs> Arthur Ransom and, and stories like that. <laughs> yeah. And there wasn't much between that and then going on to what I would hesitatingly call grown up fiction. Um, so it was sometime between my being there and now. Um, but now there's no question that, you know, YA fiction is an absolutely enormous and very important area of of literature to the point that we have this year may i 'm glad that you picked this particular panel, Diana, because this is actually the third y a event that we are featuring in the adult section of the program. I think many people might have thought that we would have consigned y a to the authors in the schools program, not a bit of it. We have done three of these panels, and one of the reasons for that is we want to encourage people. To read it. Yes, there is a why. (laughs) But you don't actually have to be young in order to enjoy YA. It's very, very uh, deftly done. And the topics that address... Uh, addresses are topics that should be of interest to absolutely everybody you know in some ways i think that the ya is is it does something of a disservice because there are people i think who would be inclined never to pick one up so we're we're very much trying to encourage people to spread their literary wings a little bit and try something a little bit different
0: Moving on to Tuesday, April 13th, you have an evening which I feel sure is going to light up the literary interwebs. The evening is titled You Do the Math and it features three authors slash mathematicians, Catherine Chung, Karen Olson and Eugenia Cheng. And Eugenia Cheng is a firecracker. Where did the idea come from to talk about math and fiction? Well, this
3: actually, we we were hoping to do this panel last year. And of course, we weren't able to do so because of the pandemic. But it was such a strong idea, and one that we were so excited about that we wanted to recreate it. So we've done it again, because we thought it was uh, really interesting. I mean, one of the things that we try and do is is unground, unground, (laughs) as unbound, Just me more coffee please as as unbound grows is to try and expand people's conception about of, of books and what they can address and in particular what a literary festival can do and we thought that one facet of that would be to expand the subject matter of the things that we talk about, in particular thinking about math and science, and so we we began with math. Because it is, um, it's a fascinating area. And when you get to the level that, that these three writers get to, math really stops being math at all, and really becomes more philosophy or art or something like that. Because the, some of the concepts involved are liable to make your head explode if you think about them for too long. And so, it actually, I think, math is is a perfect subject for for books generally, and for that, the kind of discussion that we love so much at Unbound. So, yes, it is going to be a fascinating talk and and the three people who we have have all addressed the subject in slightly different ways so karen olsen has written a memoir stroke biography about the wiles and and two famous mathematicians and her relationship with them As a reader of their work and a a student of their work, Eugenia Cheng uh, has written many, many books, nonfiction books about math, and she's also very well known. She does YouTube videos explaining some math principles, um, which have got millions and millions of views. And Catherine Chung has written uh, a novel called *The Tenth Muse*, which is, and so that's the only novel, and that and the main character in that is is a young, brilliant math prodigy. So they're all addressing the subject in different ways, and again, that's one of the things that we always try and do at Unbound is to look at a topic from various different perspectives. And I, I, it's going to be a wonderful discussion.
0: The last event, and we only have a very brief time to talk about it, but I want to quickly touch on is Missouri Bicentennial, the mm. state of things on the April the 20th. Tell us a little bit about that evening.
3: Right. So one of the things that we wanted to do this year, because, of course, it is the bicentennial, is to focus a little bit on Missouri or a little bit more than perhaps we normally would. And this is the culmination of that. Uh, and we have two wonderful writers, Walter Johnson and Sarah Kenzie, or who both write about Missouri and particularly about politics, economics and race in Missouri. And... Um, it is not, um, I think it's fair to say, going to be a celebration of the state, uh, <laughs> but it's going to be a critical look at Missouri and about its legacy, and both in the past and also present day, which sort of feels on brand for for Unbound.
0: Perfect. Well, to find out more about the upcoming Unbound Book Festival events, go to unboundbookfestival.com. And the great thing this year is, as we said earlier, if you see a past event on the schedule that you wish you'd seen, they are all available on YouTube. And the links to those YouTube viewings you can find on each talk's Unbound page. Alex George, author, lawyer, independent bookshop owner, festival impresario. Thank you, (laughs) as always. Thanks, Diana. On last week's show, we talked about the University of Missouri's annual Visual Arts and Design Showcase, but that is not the only annual spring event that heralds the university's manifold artistic talent. This weekend is also the Chancellor's Arts Showcase, which serves to highlight the talents of the university's music and theatre performers. And one of our regular guests on Speaking of the Arts, Assistant Teaching Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies, Dr Joy Powell, is here to tell us more. Welcome back, Joy.
4: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, all I know about this event is that it is a celebration of the arts at Mizzou featuring student performances and creativity and featuring artist in residence, Daniel Willis. So you've got 10 minutes to fill in all the gaps. Over to you, Joy.
4: (laughs) 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 Well, this event was originally started. This is the, I think, the 17th year, 18th year, something like that. I've been directing it since the spring of 2019 and it really is what it says. It's to showcase to, you know, our upper administration who are supportive, you know, they come to our things, but they can't come to everything, right? There's just too much. And so this in one evening gives a really solid overview of the arts. On campus, which, of course, includes, as you said, theater, Department of Theater and the School of Music, but also the School of Visual Studies. And I'm thrilled that, that we have such an exciting showing from the School of Visual Studies because of the format being mostly digital. So much of their work now can really shine, which I'm really, really pumped about. We're throwing it back to a different time, and we're going to do a drive-in um, movie vibe so, folks will, um, if they if they want to come in person and experience the drive-in vibe, they would come to the parking lot of the Singfield Music Center. Um, the Singfield Music Center is at the corner of University and Hit Street, and the parking lot is just directly behind the building. And we will be projecting on the the back of the building all of the art and performances that we want to share. So you can come, it's $10 a person or $20 a carload, and you can get those tickets, quote-unquote, at the door or at the the parking lot entrance. Uh, We've got a team. um, Normally, the folks that are our ushers and box office staff will be out there directing folks where to park. And um, because people are in their cars, it's automatically distanced and safe. But the event begins at 7 p.m. on Saturday evening. And we will feature two live performances from the School of Music. One of the elements of this event is the Singfield Music Prize. And that's uh, Gene and Rick Singfield. Of course, their name is on the building. So they are huge contributors to to the School of Music. And um, they give a prize in composition every spring. To a student. And so um, Santiago Bice is the winner this year. And his composition is for uh, a small string ensemble. And so we'll do the world premiere of that piece at this event. And so that will happen inside live and be streamed outside and projected on the side of the building. And then we'll have two what I'm calling highlight reels from both the School of Visual Studies and the Department of Theater of the work that that we've done, you know, in the past year. And then we'll end the evening with a scene from the upcoming opera, Falstaff, and that will be inside the Singfield Music Center as well and then streamed and projected on the outside of the building so the folks in the cars can see that live performance as well. Um, We're very excited about this. It has been quite a collaborative effort we are working with as you said the artist in residence program and so Daniel Willis is an arts and science alum he's an English major but he did a ton of theater here did a ton of filmmaking and now Daniel is um, a writer and a director and a producer of TV shows such as The Rookie and Blacklist um, and many others Um, we've zoomed with him a couple of times he is absolutely wonderful and we're very excited to get to work with him on this. And so his, uh, one of his contributions to this event is he helped guide our students as they created the theater compilation video, the highlight reel, and um, gave wonderful feedback. And then, of course, that then created a dialogue with our students to ask him questions and questions. He is just so open and so accessible, and and you know the the underlying theme of this event is you know hashtag Mizzou Made, and so Daniel definitely embraces that idea. And um, throughout the evening, we'll have um, we'll have four students or alumni share what it means to them to be Mizzou Made. Um, also, you know another important element of this is the Mizzou Visual Productions team, which I cannot praise enough. They have been Wonderful, as have the tech teams from the School of Music and the folks that that, um, were able to um, get all of the content from the School of Visual Studies. Katina Basikas just was so instrumental in that. But it has just been such a, a highly, highly collaborative event already that I'm very, very excited to share with our audiences what we have been able to put together in these Mm ever-changing times.
0: So looking ahead, and I know this is a crystal ball question, we don't know when (laughs) we are going to fully emerge from this past year, but what do your plans look like for the Larry D. Clark summer rep season?
4: Well, let me get out my crystal ball so that I can (laughs) look into it. No, I'm teasing.
0: And I can play back this segment later and say, well, you said.
4: (laughs) Exactly. Well, we're very, very excited about the uh, summer repertory theater season. Um, we are actually doing something that they haven't done since I think the 1950s with SRT, and that is we're taking it outside. Perfect. So we are going to be doing outdoor theater for the summer. We we cannot wait. It is going to be so exciting. We're actually going to be performing on Traditions Plaza, which is in the center of campus, between the uh, Alumni Center and the Law School. There, um, it's the it has all the bricks dedicated or in honor of folks Um, but on the other side of where the bricks are there is this sort of half moon stage area and then built into the hill there are these little tiers that it's it's like a mini amphitheater but the stage is is very large and so we are going to be doing Madagascar a musical adventure out there which we're very excited about it's based on the movie Um, the music is really great all the characters that folks love. Yes, the penguins are in it. If you're a Madagascar fan, you know how funny <laughs> the penguins are. So they'll be there as as well as all the other characters. And then we're also going to be doing um, a concert, which is going to be an evening of musical theater songs from different musicals, different eras. And um, that's going to be a scholarship benefit concert. Uh, so a scholarship uh, to help create more scholarship money for our students. So those are our two... Shows. We'll also do comedies and concert as well um, as we usually do, and we are just so excited to think about performing live in front of people again. That'll be the end of June. Um, Our summer season's a little shorter this year, it'll end July 3rd. But we are very excited to uh, be able to be live with our audiences again.
0: Well, before we close, can we just talk about one thing about the actor Tay Diggs? For anyone who hasn't been swooning over him online, (laughs) can you fill us in quickly on who he is and how come he's going to be spotted strolling the streets of Columbia?
4: (laughs) Well, of course, we're all giggling in our department because we've had I mean, I've got people from high school, middle school, people I haven't seen in 20 years reaching out. Being so excited about Tay Diggs coming, um, and it is very exciting. Um, we are thrilled to have an actor and performer of his caliber. You know, he's a Broadway actor. You know, he was in Rent and uh, Wicked and other things. He's also done TV. He's right now starring in the All American TV show that's that's currently happening. But we've been working for a while. He will also be an artist-in-residence, so he'll be here the first full week of May, and he will be working with my students in my musical theater performance class, and then that will culminate in a performance. Um, we do an end-of-the-year gala in the theater department every year, and so those performances that he will help us hone and um, give you know, coaching to the students will be at that performance, and that is on May 6th, um, and that will be in the Rheinsberger Theater here in our theater building. He's also going to be doing... Um, he's written some children's books. So he's going to be doing... He and his best friend. His best friend's the illustrator and Tay, Tay, like I know him. Tay is the writer. <laughs> and um, so they're going to be doing some readings, I think, with the Daniel Boone Public Library. I think also that that uh, Tay will be doing an event with the football team because he's playing a football coach. So his, his week is, is really packed with... Um, you know important events we 'll also be doing some talkbacks about what does it mean to write a book about race for children and what does that look like and and what is the what are the dialogues and and the way to talk about kiddos about how important they are, no matter what their skin color and so it's it's going to be a wonderful week um, not only does it give visibility but it really you know at the end of the day, the most important thing is our students, and they 're going to have this experience. And they're going to be able to take that with them after they're gone from here, um, knowing that they were able to work with, with someone of his caliber and contacts and someone that is doing what they want to do. You know, when they see it in front of them, it makes it really possible for them. And so we just cannot... We could not be more excited about him coming.
0: Well, it sounds like you already have him fully scheduled. I was going to say, can you please let him know I'd love to chat with him on the show? So if you can find, you know, a spare 15 minutes to send him to me at KOPN, that would be an amazing chat to have with such a famous actor who is going to be here in town.
4: Well, Well, I can't make any promises. I'm not in charge of his itinerary, but I will pass it along to the powers that be. (laughs) I'm going to rely on you,
0: Joy. (laughs) This year's Chancellor's Arts Showcase will be performed as a live event at 7pm on Saturday, March the 20th as a drive-in, which you can view from the Sinkfeld Music Centre parking lot on University Avenue. And if you want to find tickets for that, go to theatre.missouri.edu and all the information will be there. Joy Powell, as always, you are never to be outdone by a pandemic and you are always a sparkling (laughs) guest to have on the show.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you very much.
0: In a world where the problems seem so huge, there is one breathing space in Columbia where, for the next month at least, the world is really small. The Columbia Art League's adorable Tiny Things show is on display through April the 9th, featuring 150 small artworks to make you go "oh." I'm here to tell us more about the "oh" moments is Kelsey (laughs) Hammond, Executive Director of the Columbia Art League. Good morning, Kelsey. Good morning. What is it about tiny things? Oh, man. I
5: just, I mean, I don't know if everyone else is obsessed with watching the videos on YouTube of like, the tiniest pot ever thrown kind of (laughs) video or like, there's a tiny chef, you know, who's like a little tiny creature who makes (laughs) things in his tiny little kitchen. And I don't know, there's just something about like dollhouse furniture and little tiny things that feel like a magical little world. Um, And so yeah, I don't know, just something tiny and teeny and it's like something we can understand because you can take it all in at one moment.
0: I don't know. I'm kind of obsessed. Were you inspired by the, the tiny pot throwing for for this show? Or has, <laughs> has the tiny thing been an obsession of yours for a long time? Well,
5: I remember um, Hannah Reeves and I a long time ago, you know, we we've always loved tiny art and talked about like small work shows and and things like that. And so, um, you know, Sager Bratis is their small work show and I've always wanted to do that here too, but I didn't want to obviously recreate what they're doing and tiny things is essentially the same kind of idea, but there's something about it. Like the tiny word kind of makes you like pull your shoulders in and like drop your your head down into your neck a little bit like, Oh, it's tiny. You know, like there's something like that. You just kind of want to speak in a high voice when you're here. So, um, I don't know. I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with accessibility and keeping the prices low for people so they can feel like they can start an art collection or add to their art collection without forking over an arm and a leg or something. But it's just kind of delightful when you walk in with seeing all of the work and then how small some of the things are that people made. It's really interesting to see how people can be so creative with such limited resources.
0: So how tiny can tiny be? And how large can tiny be in this show? What are the stipulations? So we wanted to
5: make sure that everything was the actual artwork itself would be smaller than eight by eight by eight. So eight inches, that is. So if it's a three-dimensional work, it has to be smaller on all sides than that. And if it's two-dimensional, the actual piece has to be eight by eight. But then you could have a frame or something that could be up to 12 by 12 ah. just to give people a little extra breathing room if they wanted that. Oh, and then the price had to be under $300 or $300 or under so that it felt like someone could actually buy it that day kind of, <laughs> kind of a feeling. Um, and we didn't have a, a stipulation on how small something could be. So some people went really, really tiny, and I'm thrilled. Like I, I was a little worried people were like, Yep, eight eight by eight was all I could do. You know, like <laughs> that, that's all that's all I got. But some people went tiny, tiny. And there's a one artist, Isabella Shaw. Um, she's young. I think she's still in high school. She made these little tiny desks that have little tiny things on them, like a little coffee cup and a little spray bottle that you would put your hand sanitizer in and like a little tiny ruler and little tiny scissors and it's very very cute so and she handmade
0: all those little tiny pieces she did yeah she did it's really awesome i wondered if you had any artwork that needed a microscope to see it any like super tiny (laughs) micro or nano works
5: (laughs) no although i would have loved that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Next time. That's the challenge out for, you know, if we do this again, <laughs> for someone to do something like that, like paint, you know, on the side, the, the, what is it, the grain of rice, you know, mm-hmm. that when you travel, it's like, I can make a, a ship sailing on a grain of rice. Um, so I think hers might be the smallest things, but there's like a little tiny tapestry, a little woven picture of someone's, like, it's called grandma's house. And it is two by three. It's like business card size, but it's a little weaving. It's, and it's very detailed, you know, with this like house portrait, basically and other things like that that are just really, really cool.
0: Was it a juried show or are all the entered works in the show? Obviously with a tiny show, you have a lot more space available. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
5: There were just a few that um, if they were like doubled up artists or something that weren't in it. And that was mostly because we kind of ran out of pedestals (laughs) to put some of it. We had a lot of three-dimensional work, which was really, really great and a little bit unexpected. So that was the only reason if things didn't get in was it was a duplication from an artist or something like that. But yeah, most of the work got in. And the juror is uh, Don Looper, who's a instructor at State Fair College.
0: Uh, Don's, Don's an awesome juror.
5: Yeah, he's great. And he's like really tall. And I didn't know that. So when he walked <laughs> in, I was like, well, I did this well. So he had to <laughs> really get close to the stuff. <laughs> you know, so he's like, and you know, as you know, we lay everything out against the wall on the floor or put things on the stairs, the three-dimensional pieces. So he was bent over the entire time. Like, I hope he didn't hurt his back, but he was like, <laughs> really had to get down and see the stuff. He's like, I'm glad I brought my glasses. I'm like, no kidding. So yeah, it was it was pretty fun. He had a really good time, I think. He, he thought it was pretty delightful.
0: Did you have to turn any works away because they just were not tiny enough?
5: No, everybody really listened to the, well, okay, yeah, like one or two, but it wasn't a huge discrepancy, but it was enough that it was kind of like, hmm you know, like that frame is 11 by 14. So it's got to be smaller than that. But again, all the artists, it was like, like their second piece that they were turning in,
0: right? You've done such a great job translating the in gallery shows into duplicating online shows. And I've so I've been having a blast scrolling through this show online and marveling at all of the works, like some of the ones I love Christina Bollinger's little tiny Mm -hmm. silver treasure chest that is one inch by three quarters of an inch, which is just so
4: tiny. It's very weird. Uh, You
0: have, I love the little paintings, Christina Nunez's Fish Dialogue. There's a pair of little tiny paintings. Lisa Varley's Girl in a Jar, which is Fairy Light's in it, as well as a little bent up girl called Enlightenment. just reading a book, I think. Uh, tons of books in there. Of course, I, love that one. <laughs> I think one of the ones that made me just laugh out loud is Ava Drayton's hilarious mixed media work <laughs> called Tiny Dump.
5: Exactly. Yep. <laughs> you got to see it to understand it. Yep.
0: <laughs> I love all the humor and playfulness in the show. What are some of the moments of humor that you find yourself? coming back to or walking through the gallery and just lingering and and having a little giggle in front of? There's
5: one of, um, it's a, he's a hippo. No, he's a rhinoceros. He's a hippo. He's a rhinoceros. (laughs) He's a something, but he's wearing like a little vacation outfit and he's a little statue and he's like on a beach, you know, having a great time. And I'm like, I relate to you and I want to be there so much, you know, like, so he's delightful. Um, Jane Mudd's piece that has a whole bunch of they almost look like they're Pez dispensers or something, but it's all these little figurines that you probably have in your house if you've ever had kids where it's like this plastic crap that you get from <laughs> some kind of drive through meal, you know? It's like, what is this thing? Or little totems that you pick up along your travels or something. So she has them all um, arranged kind of as if they're like looking at someone talking to them, like these little idols, but they're like listening to some kind of, you know, figure off the canvas. It's just very funny. So they're all sort of like next to each other. And the background is this sort of really delicious pink, which I can only describe as like happy, like it's a really happy <laughs> color. And I love that one too. It just makes me laugh because it's just these unexpected, like a Yoda doll is in there. You know what I mean? Like things you don't expect to see in the Jane Mud painting. <laughs> um, so things like that. And then and Tony Irons has two great works that are um, photographs that are very small. So, and they look almost like paintings. They're one sort of those pieces where you're like, wait a second, what is that again? They're both shot in this cubicle, where there's nothing on the wall. It's a very sterile office cubicle. And one is a bunch of post its that are arranged in a rainbow array. And the other one is a book that's open. and The book is called How to Die. And it's just sort of like open to the first page. And it's just very, they're just both really funny if you've ever had to work in an office that's a little buttoned up or, you know, like, you're like <laughs> well, I do this for my day job, you know, that <laughs> you're actually this creative person in real life. So I relate to those a little bit too.
0: And another part of the genius of the show, which as you said, is you asked all the artists to price their work at no more than $300. So it m- makes the work more financially accessible because for a lot of people buying art has just not been anywhere near a budget possibility over the past year. And yeah. and I can see online that quite a lot of work has already sold. So is, are you happy with how sales have gone so far? Yeah, I mean, we had a bunch that
5: happened almost in the first like day that things were hung on the wall. And then there's been kind of a a lull here. So this is my challenge to you, Columbia, come on in here and get these (laughs) artworks. We can see more red dots. We need more. Um, But yeah, I mean, there were a lot of sales. And I think because the prices are low, true, but also that you can fit it in your house. You know, there's, I love big artwork, but there's something too about thinking like, I love this. Can this really fit where I, Mm. I really have space for it? And with the tiny, tiny artwork, the answer is yes. Like you can find a space for it. You just have to reconfigure something probably. Or you can just put it over your the place where you keep your masks and your keys by the door. You know, you can figure out something to add to your shelf pretty easily, I feel like.
0: I feel like one isn't enough that I want like four. I want a little, <laughs> a little array of tiny works.
5: I know. And I think actually some of these look so good together too. Like yesterday on my Facebook page, I posted some of the ones that I kind of... Like I just went through my phone and looked at the pictures I'd taken of the show. And I curated almost like a little collection of things that go together you know so i feel like it's like we could just do the animal pictures one day and then we could just do the ones that are blue and there's so many that you can really you could pick out a couple that would look really nice together on your wall you know like and then you could afford it and i think that's really really nice
0: exactly well we haven't got a huge amount of time left but i wanted to say that tiny things is just one of the compelling (laughs) shows on display at cal this month you also have a show in the south gallery called the sketchbook show so just give us a quick overview of that one
5: Sure. So we um, had sketchbooks that are all exactly the same that we asked people to sign up for. They took them home. They had about a month or so to work in them to just do whatever they wanted to in them and then turn them back in. And then we have them on display so that people who come to see those sketchbooks can actually touch them, take them off the wall, look through them. We also have a shelf of them where you can just take them off the shelf and look at them like a book. And what we're doing is we're asking people to vote on their favorite one because we're going to do an art print of the one that gets the most votes. So we'll we'll go through the, the sketchbook that has the most votes. We'll find a spread, a two-page spread or something that we like the best. And we'll make an art print that people can buy. And that will help support the artist, but also help support the art league. And the whole idea is that Artists are not born, they're made. And so a lot of the place where you can see that progress in someone's skill that they build is through their sketchbooks. And we wanted to break down that idea for people that you can kind of see a thought process or someone get better at that particular medium or whatever through looking through someone's sketchbook.
0: It is a lovely, intimate and rare glimpse into the working of an artist. Tiny Things is on display in the Betty and Art Robbins Gallery, the Columbia Art League, through April the 9th. And the sketchbook show in the South Gallery is viewable until March the 27th. And if you'd rather take a tour of the Tiny Things show from your armchair, go to columbiaartleague.org and click on View Current Exhibitions and you can see it all. Thanks, Kelsey. Always an absolute delight chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. That is it for another week. It is exciting to look at my calendar and see arts events start to populate the evenings and to be getting back to the point of juggling events so I can do as much as possible. It feels great. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can find at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm as well as on Spotify, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. As always, my thanks go to my guests today, Chris Bowling, Mallory Donahue, Alex George, Joy Powell and Kelsey Hammond. Thanks also to the guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of Yasmin's music and her new album on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia!